Hi, how you been? It's been a few months since our last episode launched, and I know some of you might have been worried that we were gone for good. That is a pretty reasonable fear. I mean, roughly half of all podcasts fail to make it to a second season, but not us. We are back. Season two is right around the corner. Ten more episodes stuffed full of tales from the past with connections to the present. But this episode, well, this isn't part of season two. It's not part of season one either. It's a bonus episode. We wanted to publish something a little different in between seasons, so we came up with this. You see, Simar, the research group that's behind this series, they've had a busy couple of months. And rather than cram all those updates into a regular episode, I wanted to go through some of it here so it's all in one place. This is a show that tries to learn from the past so we can better understand the present and maybe even see into the future a little bit. With that in mind, I'm going to start at the beginning. So step into the time machine with me as we go all the way back to 1989. In the 1980s, Dr. Wayne Lott was a professor at the University of Manitoba. By 1989, I was still the head of the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics. He liked to ski. He did martial arts. He was married to his high school sweetheart and was even writing a book. Life was good. That year, he had a visiting researcher from Ukraine working in the lab. Having a new person in his lab led Wayne to doing some experiments that he might not have done otherwise. And what our protocol was was inject a small amount of insulin into the artery going to the brain and looking at how much blood glucose levels dropped in response to that insulin. They also tried injecting it into a vein flowing away from the brain. And when they did that, they found there really wasn't any difference. But our protocol had also involved then testing the hypothesis that insulin was acting on the brain through the vagus nerve to the liver and would have some effect if we cut those nerves. So we cut the nerves and repeated it. That's when it got interesting. Both signals went down simultaneously, way down. The response to insulin was dramatically decreased. So that was a real puzzler. This was his eureka moment. Why would cutting the nerves to the liver change the body's response to insulin so dramatically? Insulin comes from the pancreas. Why was the liver involved? We were totally flummoxed, not really able to explain it. He did a few more experiments and came up with a hypothesis that insulin wasn't working alone, that it had a sidekick, something coming from the liver that was helping the insulin do its job of taking glucose out of the blood. That was a eureka moment because that meant that there was a hormone that was being released from the liver that was being controlled by these parasympathetic nerves that was affecting the peripheral tissues, primarily muscle. That was, at that moment then, I told the whole lab, guys, we're shifting gears. We're going to take a look at this. Except they didn't. I mean, he worked on it for a while, but he had a full teaching load and another discovery that was moving ahead quickly. A little aside here, the liver is unusual compared to other organs because it has the ability to regenerate itself. Like, if you give away a piece of your liver to someone, your own liver will regrow. That doesn't happen with your lungs or your heart. 
But how does your liver know when to stop that regeneration? Wayne's lab was spending most of its time figuring that out. And they were successful too. Anyhow, while he was working on that, he looked for someone to take on this hormone research and no one would. Yeah, it was, uh, it was just not well received. You see, as revolutionary and as promising as his idea was, any scientist worth their lab coat could see that this was going to take a lot of work. It wasn't really a discovery even, it was just an observation. Someone would have to dedicate years and years of research to prove that this hormone existed, and even more work to prove it did what Dr. Lott's hypothesis proposed it did. The years rolled by and no one stepped up to take on the challenge. Not only that, a lot of people just kind of thought his ideas were crazy. The one rejection that still stings was from this journal he tried to publish in. It was sent to uh, Diabetologia, and the manuscript was sent back unreviewed, and it was said that the claims are so broad that if it was true, it would already be known. Dr. Lott's dream of a cure for type 2 diabetes was being killed by apathy and skepticism. I don't think there's any advantage in having skeptics. Skepticism is a negative thing. Games playing. I don't want a skeptic. I want people that are critical thinkers that are going to challenge the hypothesis, find the weakness that they can in the hypothesis, but don't be a bloody skeptic. This went on for years, decades actually. But rather than pushing back, Dr. Lott turned inward. One of the approaches that that I have in terms of dealing with uh, critics is to say, if you are your most severe critic, nobody else can be. You, you attack your own ideas first. And, uh, and, and that's basically what we've done. But he was up against a paradigm, an established, well-respected set of beliefs. And poking holes in established thinking is usually met with resistance. The obvious parallel is about gravity. Before Einstein, everybody knew that gravity was a simple force explained perfectly by Newton's equations. Then Einstein comes along with some fancy-dancy math and shows that Newton's simple system is just a special case of a more confusing and complicated system. You know, stuff like an object's mass depends on how fast it's going. Well, in 1905, Einstein's ideas seemed like science fiction. You could bet most people figured he was wrong. Now, I'm not comparing Wayne Lott to Einstein, that's not fair to anyone, but I will compare society in the 1980s to society a century before. People have a hard time accepting new ideas when they feel really sure they've got it all worked out. That's the dilemma Dr. Lott was facing for years. People just weren't giving his hypothesis a fair shake. And all the while, all around the world, people are dying. Right now in the world, there are over 400 million people with type 2 diabetes. It affects men and women equally. We see it in wealthy Western countries and in developing nations. Last year, a million people died from it. The effects on survivors are, in some cases, gruesome. Year to year, we see increases in the consequences of diabetes eye issues, limb amputations, 70,000 limbs cut off in the United States last year, that they should never get to that stage. Wayne knew that every year his idea sat on the shelf, millions of people were suffering. That frustration led to conversations between Wayne and his son, Mick. 
I'm not a scientist. I have a degree in recreation and community management, and I have had four different businesses. I spent a lot of time working in the community. I worked with gang kids for 10 years. I teach at the School of Business at the university, and I had a kayaking school. Mick had grown up as the child of a pair of academics. His mom, Melanie, was also a professor. He had developed an outlook that said anything was possible. You just need a plan and the right partners. He started to take an interest in what his dad was doing, not the science per se, but the logistic struggles with getting his discovery out there. It was always challenging for my dad to find the resources to continue doing innovative work. He was always scratching for the next round of funding. He was spending a lot of time dealing with politics, the administrative process, egos and individuals along the way. And I just remember hearing a lot of frustrations around that he really wanted to be just focusing on the science. Wayne was working with some investors and some incubator-type organizations. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. He's got a team and it's moving forward and he's going to be successful getting it out into the world in whatever format that would be. Mick decided to sit in on a couple of those meetings. After all, he was an entrepreneur himself and he wanted to see what their process was. But as I listened, I realized that there were a lot of gaps in what was happening and what needed to happen. And I just thought, this isn't the right group. They're not following best practice around building the necessary platform, the right team. I heard things that didn't feel like they were operating with the highest level of integrity. I didn't think they were driven by the right purpose and their mission. I mean, they wanted uh, a quick pump and dump. In the investing world, a pump and dump is when you boost the value of a company or a stock using claims that are, well, exaggerated or maybe even completely false. And then you sell your holdings, you pocket this big windfall, and you get it of town before the other investors catch on. Well, Wayne's goal, and as a result, Mick's goal, wasn't a quick profit grab. It was to cure type 2 diabetes. And that was going to require a long-term approach. So I was voicing that opinion in November in 2009, sitting there chatting with my folks. They kind of uh, put me on the hot seat and said, well, then, you know, why don't you do it? And why don't we do it? And it didn't take long for us to, for the three of us to kind of rally around that idea and decide that that was the way we were going to move forward. It was a pretty huge undertaking. Melanie, that's Mick's mom, Wayne's wife, had left academia at this point to be a lawyer. She retired as a partner in her law firm and started working to create the legal foundations of the company. Wayne kept doing his research. And Mick he went looking for an opportunity to tell the world what they'd found. I heard that there was a life sciences conference happening down in Minneapolis. So we jumped on the bus and we head down there and within a few days, my dad was up in front of 500 people presenting some of his breakthrough science. It was an incredible moment for a company that two weeks before hadn't even existed. And at the end of that presentation, he said, if anyone is interested in learning more, Our CEO is in the crowd, you know, and I waved my hand, and that's the first time people heard about Symar. Oh, yeah. The name, Symar? I should probably explain that. It's a portmanteau. You know, two words mashed together like brunch or spork or brangelina. So Symar is science to market. So our tagline is bringing breakthrough science to market. The Symar business story follows a pretty common arc. Lots of excitement and interest, but not much in the way of direct investment. In the early years, Wayne and Melanie cashed their retirement savings to fund the lab work. And then in 2016, they took out a second mortgage on their house. 
They pitched their idea to a thousand investors before they got their first yes. But then they got some momentum. The yeses became a little more frequent. And in the last three years, they've attracted $9 million from 55 different investors. The company is now valued at $95 million. But there's still a huge amount of work to do. We need to take this idea and get it to market where someone that is sick and living a painful, somewhat wretched life because of the disease they're fighting with, they can take a pill and it can fix them. Or they can get on a preventative program or get a diagnostic evaluation done so they can stop the progression or avoid it in the first place. I'm going to jump ahead 12 years, from when the company was founded in 2009 all the way to 2021. I mean, a lot of stuff happened. They did a lot of research. They even created a nutraceutical called Cymar Nupa Daily. It's a supplement that helps your body direct the glucose in your blood into your muscles rather than into fat. It works on the idea of nutrient partitioning, and that's why it's called Nupa. And the daily part, well, you can figure out why it's called daily. Speaking of names... Over that decade or so, they gave this hormone a name too. They called it HISS, H-I-S-S. It's an acronym for Hepatic Insulin Sensitizing Substance. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead because all of that became backstory for a really groundbreaking moment in April 2021. They were doing a bunch of different experiments to test Lot's hypothesis to understand how the whole system worked. I mean, science does move slowly sometimes. It had been decades since Wayne made his initial observation. Remember, that was 1989 when he was working with that Ukrainian guy. And here we are 30 years later, and they're still running laboratory tests to figure out what exactly is going on. Our lab has adapted a bioassay in order to allow us to measure the glucose uptake response of this muscle cells. That's Dr. Victoria Sid. She's a research associate in the Simar lab. This is how she describes the system as they understand it today. So once his is released from the liver, his selectively acts on the muscle to stimulate glucose uptake and clear any excessive glucose from circulation. All of this fit with Dr. Lott's original theory from decades ago that you need insulin and his working together for optimal glucose uptake. And that means type 2 diabetes, a disease where insulin is present but your muscles still don't take up glucose very well, might at least in part be caused by a lack of his. So what Victoria did was to set out dozens of vials, each containing muscle cells, and then feed them some glucose, basically just sugar water. And then she waited, and she measured to see how much glucose got absorbed. Well, then she repeated it, but she added insulin. And she did it again, but she added his. And then the fourth time she did it, adding both insulin and his. Our lab has demonstrated that in the absence of his activity in these samples, glucose uptake in these muscle cells is significantly less compared to when his was present. So when his was missing, the muscles didn't gobble up the sugar. The muscle cells in that little vial were acting like a person with type 2 diabetes. The results empirically support the hypothesis. It was a landmark day, a major milestone for metabolic science, a new understanding that type 2 diabetes could happen when either insulin or his is missing. Now, in a fairy tale, Dr. Lott would get on the rooftop and announce to the world that he'd solved diabetes and was ready to end the global epidemic today. But of course, it's not a fairy tale. 
It is emotional, but you know, doing the science game, you got to defend yourself against that. You've got to not let yourself get cranked into that. I have to be my own worst critic. I have to examine everything that I think that we've just shown and find a flaw in it and be the one that attacks that flaw. So it's hard to jump up and down when you're going to be trying to kick yourself in the knee intentionally, you know? And I understand from everybody else's perspective why this is really exciting. No kidding. This is a new paradigm that explains type 2 diabetes after a hundred years. So yeah, I can understand why there should be an awful lot of people that are really excited about this. Since then, there's been even more to get excited about. Victoria has repeated the experiment, but this time with fat cells in the vials instead of muscle cells. And same as before, she added either insulin or Hiss or insulin and Hiss together. Now remember, for the muscle cells, they only reacted to the Hiss, but the fat cells, they were different. The fat cells only reacted to the insulin. And here's why that matters. Insulin does its job by taking sugar out of your blood and pumping it into fat cells. So that could make you more fat. And all of this brings us to the clinical trial stage. So when we look at clinical trials, there are really three main phases. That's Krista Coventry. She works for an independent company that guides research labs through the clinical trial process. The three stages each have their own purpose, their own question to answer. Phase one is, does it harm the patient? And they're always done in healthy individuals. Phase two is, does it provide some benefit to the patient? And sometimes these studies will include a placebo. So that'll be a similar capsule or tablet or powder that contains nothing, basically. So we're comparing how well the investigational product works compared to not having that treatment. And phase three asks, exactly how should we deliver this treatment to get the best results? When those results are favorable, phase three studies can be considered a final confirmation of the investigational product's safety and efficacy. That's what Simar is doing right now. Well, actually, they've got four different clinical trials going at the same time. Three of them are kind of testing the test because this approach is so unusual, they need to do trials to know that their testing regime works at all. The trials use standardized meal kits, and they include people with really healthy lifestyles and then some other people who are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes, people who are overweight and have poor exercise habits. All those trials are going to establish what the low and the high scores are for the general population. See, what I'm interested in are the trials scheduled to begin in 2022. That's a phase two trial where they'll give Simar Nupa Renew to people with what's called pre-diabetes. And that pill will stimulate their production of Hiss. And if the hypothesis holds, their bodies will convert sugar in the blood into muscle. Not fat, like insulin does. Muscle. It's here. It's real. There can be no denying of it. And uh, now the issue is moving forward, bringing this into people's health. And my role is going to become less in doing this because it now gets more complex in a different way. It's not discovery science anymore. It's now applied science, clinical science, therapeutics, getting it to sick people in an experimental forum. So this is a huge thing personally for me to get to this stage. 
It has been a long and winding road of discovery, but this isn't the end of the road. This is the beginning of a new entry ramp onto a super highway where we're going to bring this to people's health. So what it means to me is that this mission is well underway to being fully achieved in the next few years. All right. Thanks for joining me for this unusual bonus episode. I really wanted to lay out where Saimar is at, and I felt like this was the best way to do it. So coming up next in season two, we're going to go back to our original format. We're going to have fascinating stories from history with connections to what's happening today. In the next four months, we're going to bring you all kinds of stuff. The trouble with trials. Uh, let's see, we got one called Unintended Consequences. Oh, and we're going to start with an episode called What's in a Name, where Hiss gets a sexy new name. I'm Dan Riskin. Thanks for joining me for Inside the Breakthrough.